Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have with me today John Popola, who is a father, filmmaker, serial entrepreneur, and the CEO and founder of the Emergent Order Foundation, a nonprofit studio dedicated to heroic storytelling that embodies classical virtues and promotes a culture of American freedom. Love that. He is known for his work with Russ Roberts on the Keynes Hayek rap videos and is the creator of a new project, Dad Saves America. John, thanks for joining me. So happy to be on the show. Yeah. You and I have been uh, connected through a number of people in the libertarian world, and uh, we've been friends on Facebook, and I, I was telling you off air that I've always enjoyed how you post things. Like recently, it's all about the inflation in the Fed. You post a few things on Facebook that I was just like, you know what? You might be a little agitated, but like you have this genuine care for society and your country and for, you know, the the well-being of people. And you really care that the government is encroaching upon our, you know, our human flourishing and our, and our well-being. And so you are the kind of person that I love to have conversations with and just sort of either pick your brain or just sort of get your take on some things. Because I think you know, what you have to say is very, you know, offers a lot to people. But how did you get into doing what you do? I mean, you are a film producer, you've made documentaries, you've made very famous rap videos with an economist, which is just so awesome to have on your record. I'm sure you want to be known in the libertarian world as more than just the guy who did the rap videos. But just tell us how you got into this. The Keynes versus Hayek rap videos will be on my tombstone And I've more than made peace with that fact. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that in a lot of ways, what we're doing now with Dad Saves America is a return to the underlying motivations that got me into this work in the first place. Because a story I've shared many times is my wife and I, Lisa, got married. We were working together at Nickelodeon. We moved to Hoboken. We, We had our son, well, she did most of the work on that, to be sure. All the work. And um, well, you drove her to the hospital, I'm sure, I, right? Yeah. No, I, I've always had the mornings. And so we've always had very much a 50 50 strategy when it comes to parenting. So I, I love spending time with my family. But my family was the centerpiece of my concern because, in the face of the financial crisis and then all the crazy stimulus programs that followed and Occupy Wall Street and this popularization of a call to return to the socialism discussion, which seemed like it should have been relegated to the 20th century where it belongs, happily murdering hundreds of millions of people as socialism likes to do. I felt called to put my skills to use trying to promote freedom, trying to promote you know, classical liberal principles, the principles of the founding, the principles of the constitution. Yeah. However imperfectly they might have been expressed in American history, there's never been a better articulation of the Western sort of philosophical and moral canon than America's founding principles. So that really was the motivation for everything. That's mm-hmm. what motivated the creation of the Keynes Hayek rap videos. That's why I reached out to Russ Roberts while I was you know, working at Spike TV as a creative director. It's why I left Spike and moved to Austin, Texas to start working on videos and films that matter 
to me and that advance the principles and the virtues that I think are essential to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And it's why we're doing what we're doing now with Dad Saves America, trying to draw attention to this essential role that we play as fathers and provide a positive aspirational voice and alternative to a culture that has largely turned its back on men and on fatherhood, both sort of narratively and physically, because we now lead mm-hmm. the world in fatherlessness. So the cultural, mm. the cultural background you know, has a real boots on the ground impact on our society. And I think it's deeply destructive. And I, I, I want to yeah. do something positive in response. I want to do something creative in response to the destruction. How do you react when you hear people use the term toxic masculinity? Well, you know, so much of my response to toxic masculinity as a term and the broader like anti-male narrative Mm-hmm. I hear through the lens of being a dad and having a son. And what really got me going was seeing that language presented to my son in sixth grade. He's 10. He doesn't have anything toxic about his inherent nature or about mm. his, you know, latent masculinity. You know, it's just trying to, he's trying to figure it out for himself. What does it mean to be? a boy, to be a man, to be a person. And to present something that is inherent and um, inborn as being like fundamentally deeply flawed at the, at the root, which is what that phrase really ends up being. You know, it really is ultimately pretty indistinguishable from just saying masculinity is toxic. Mm-hmm. That I, I just can't help but revile that phrase. Now, is there toxic behavior? Yes. Yes, there's toxic behavior. Are men toxic? Yes. Are women toxic? Yes. Hmm. Have I seen men do aggressive sort of ape-like behavior? <laughs> uh, I mean, I watched Goodfellas with Matteo re- pretty recently. And at the end, he was just shocked. And he's like, because, you know, a slight altercation in that movie leads to murder. Yeah. You know, oh, what do you think? I'm funny. Next thing you know, you're being murdered. And Mateo's response was, they're like apes. Mm. It's a total, you know, stimulus response situation. There's no filter. And sure, that's obviously a toxic behavior, but there's nothing inherently toxic about whatever we want to call masculinity, the set of traits that constitutes on average, being a man or however you want to define it. I think that that's, it's just part and parcel with this broader identity politics, you know, agenda, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, you know, you were here in, we were here in Austin, UT, University of Texas had, had these signs up, Matt, you know, masculine UT. And it was all these ways to not be a toxic male. And they all sounded like, don't be a man. <laughs> <laughs> and um masculine you know, UT. Wow, that's a masculine that's a stretch, UT. actually. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. The crack creative team at UT. <laughs> you know, the other thing I, I can't I can't help but say is I did work at like this first network for men, Spike TV, for seven years. Yeah. And the thing that was so funny about working at Spike was that it was filled with family men. It was actually probably the most warm, loving environment of any of the workplaces I had been in prior to starting Emerging Mm -hmm. Worker. Like we That's not the impression one would get though. (laughs) No, no, no. 
you know, it was definitely more Maxim Magazine than GQ as a channel. But in terms of the actual culture at Spike, and it wasn't perfect, but it was actually pretty great. And that's like a kind of a perfect example of how all this rhetoric doesn't bear any resemblance to the average experience most people have. Mm. Yeah. You know, as a dad, I have found it sometimes difficult to know exactly how to instill values in my kids in a way that is somewhat appealing to them. Like my kids were homeschooled for a time. And when my wife was like going through history stuff and they would talk about a certain portion of history that had to do with like, I think it might've been the Great Depression or whatever it is. And like, I'm in the next room and they're like, dad, go away. Cause I know that if you like jump into this conversation, like they don't want to hear me like rant and rave or whatever. I mean, how have you worked to instill values in your son that he's willing to hear? I mean, I'm sure it's more than just, you know, a particular tactic, but just share some of your thoughts there. It's so hard. So I'm probably more lecturous than I should be. I like to get on my soapbox with my son and talk to him about the world. I always have been. Since he was little, I've talked to him pretty far above what was probably his likely capability. You know, when he was a little baby, I baby talked with him. But as soon as he could speak, it was kind of like, all right, time to start (laughs) talking. Let's talk about nominal income targeting instead of interest (laughs) rates. So I don't know if that's effective or not, but it's certainly the the route I took. Mm -hmm. I do think that, uh, I think the biggest role we play in influencing our kids ends up being the behavior we model. Not what we say, but it's, it's like everything in life, right? It's not what we say that really matters. It's what we do. And so I think it's that behavior that ends up being the biggest lesson we teach our kids. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded of that recently because my uncle Bill passed away very suddenly, which has been very difficult. And so, you know, I've been emotional for the past couple of weeks and I was driving with Mateo and Lisa and I had said that I broke down in front of some of our team and I just had a rough day thinking about my uncle. And Mateo said to me, you know, Pop, you've shown me that it's okay to be emotional as a man. And I really appreciate that. Hmm. And that's probably as close to a perfect lesson as any I've ever been able to give to him. And it's not been a lesson. I, I have actually told him that with words, but him actually getting to see that I'm comfortable crying, comfortable letting my emotions out. I think one of the things, I mean, this kind of dovetails with this concept of toxic masculinity in a certain sense. So, you know, I think we all want to have healthy psychology. We want to live a life that's rich and full. And that means being in touch with our emotions. And I think Mm -hmm. men process emotions on average differently than women on average. And so having permission to be emotional And let that be part of your identity and not think that, well, I'm a man. I have to tough it up. I should always be stoic no matter how I feel. I, you know, that says who, like, that's not the way. um, Yeah. That's not what I consider to be being a healthy person. So that's a lesson I've taught my son just by being an emotional person. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely kind of weird that people have that over, I use the, um, It was a a word that I kind of recently heard by listening to a podcast about what could be considered a type of toxic masculinity. They use the word overexpressed masculinity. 
And I was just like, huh, interesting. It's like you take that up and you crank it to 11 and and somehow that means that you can't cry because you're at that sort of peak volume and you can't vary what it is that you're, you know, how it is that you're being a dad or or a man or whatever. So, you know, I, I hear you that that's kind of a confusing thing to think that someone would actually say, well, to be a man means that you got to withhold from emotion publicly or even in front of your family. That's That's pretty ridiculous. I mean, one of the lessons... The things I've tried to instill in my son in terms of things I've told him are very philosophically rooted. So from an early age, I've told him the world doesn't care about him because the world is not a being that can care. God can care about him and love him. I can care about him and love him. They're his friends and colleagues and his future spouse and his mother. And there are people who can care about him, but the world is just the world. The world doesn't care about fairness because stars explode. <laughs> it's just, it's hmm. just the way it is. So what is and isn't fairness and what is and isn't justice have been things I've tried to make him sensitive to mm, yeah. because I know he's going to get those messages early and often. And a lot of those messages are deeply, deeply confused. Mm, yeah. You know, one thing that I sort of struggle with with my kids is knowing when to introduce them to what's wrong with the world. <laughs> because you, I think it was back in, uh, I think it was in 2008, we cut cable. We were just like, all right, we're not gonna, we're not gonna pay for cable. And for a little while, I got my news in a humorous way by watching The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I gave up that when he left. But that's kind of how I knew what you know what was going on in the world generally. Because I was like, you know what? I took a playbook from Isaac Morehouse and said, just don't pay attention to it all, right? And yeah. my life got tremendously better. But my kids were really little. And my oldest right now is 14. And, you know, he's becoming a little bit more aware of the world through friends and things. But, you know, my kids don't really know about, you know, terrible things happening other than like as a historical lesson, like they know about the Holocaust and and some things like that. But introducing them to a world where they have to understand that they will be offended and like what you said, that the world doesn't care about them. That's been a challenge for me. And it's been a struggle for me and my wife to be like, all right, well, how much do we shelter them to protect them for a little while while they're still, you know, becoming of age in such a way that they can have the fortitude and strength to fight it internally, right? Instead of being yeah. snowflakes. Um, and, I, and I don't use that word lightly. That's, that's you know, I think that's a technical term now. Um, so, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a matter of social science, yes. <laughs> yes, right. It is now, right? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, do you talk to your kids about, I mean, you probably just sort of said that you kind of try to lecture and that's, I feel like I'm in good company now that, you know, a dad like you also is prone to lecturing. What have you done to sort of introduce them to the types of things that they have to prepare for in life? Because at some point, you know, you can make it as fair as you can as, as a parent to some extent. But once they're gone, life isn't going to make it fair the way dad and mom tried to do it. Well, in so many ways, this is like the essential ethos I'm trying to promote with our YouTube channel and with, our, with Dad Saves America. Because I think that the challenge we face as parents is... How do we set up our kids to survive and to thrive after we're gone? That's the painful sort of tragic reality of being a parent. 
mm. is we want our kids to outlive us and be happy and successful and, and to have kids of their own who will outlive them. And so it just raised, I think a way I can answer your question is, is to say, you know, what steps do we have we tried to take me and, and Lisa to set our son up to be robust or, you know, anti-fragile to use the Nassim Taleb mm-hmm. term, which I like yeah. a lot and that we referenced in some of our videos. You can look no further than our son's knees because they are covered in scars. <laughs> and the reasons for that stem in part from choices we consciously made. So from an early age, and Lisa was great about this, and, you know, you need to, marriage is always a partnership of equals bringing our complementary capabilities and temperaments to the table, right? So, but Lisa and I had a couple basic rules. And we were just talking about this the other day, because one of the places we got this was actually from this, the old show, Super Nanny. So if you've ever seen, so Super Nanny was like this reality show where this like English nanny would come to a dysfunctional house where the kid was a psychotic brat and fix it. And she had basically like one trick and it was follow through on your threats. And the subset of that is don't make threats you can't follow through on as a disciplinarian. Yeah, yeah. So the if you don't stop it, I'm going to take away your computer for a month. It's like, well, are you going to do that? Because if you're not going to take it away for a month, don't <laughs> threaten it. Because kids are really smart and they learn quickly that you're full of SHIT. So that was a rule we had. Okay, we will not make idle threats. And we will also always present a united front. So then the other thing that really I have to credit Lisa with, because she was home with Mateo more. She stayed home after he was born. She went back to work briefly and then realized that she didn't want to be apart from him when he was little. So she didn't really start working again until we started Emergent Order. When he would, you know, go crazy and, you know, be a three-year-old, which is like a little psychotic person, if he acted in a way that was just like a baby and trying to get attention and being annoying and being loud and obnoxious, she would deprive him of attention. She wouldn't lean into that. Mm. She would actually turn her back to him and just say, no, I don't like that. And just literally turn away. And similarly, when he would get hurt, if it wasn't really a problem, we would not really acknowledge it. You know, because kids will, hmm. you can watch the dynamic of, with, with little kids. They'll fall and they'll start to cry. And then if you rush in, oh, honey, oh, baby, are you okay? Oh, 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 oh. Like they, they love it. They, they, they suck into that. They lean into it. Yeah. They start wailing. But if you're like, oh, no, you're good. You're great. Let's go. Let's do, let's do something else. They realize, oh, I'm surviving. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. And that basic lesson. I think has carried through all of our parenting, which is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So when our son comes home covered in scrapes and scratches, or we send him to a school in the, in the case of when we moved to Austin, we sent him to the Austin Waldorf school, which would basically let him run around like a crazy person and fall out of trees every other day. You know, we made that choice. We wanted him to have that experience. We wanted him to physically, viscerally experience surviving pain 
It's the survival of the pain. It's the, I'm, oh, I'm okay. Oh, I was scared to do that. I did it. Oh, I got hurt. But I also learned, okay, I'm going to do it again. And now next time I'm not going to be hurt. That's where all the action is to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a trick, it's interesting that your wife sort of had that sort of um, take on things with, you know, with the attention and stuff. Because my wife, she's a psychologist and she kind of taught me a few things in in her training about, you know, you just don't let the kids get attention, especially if it's like tantrum inducing or, you know, they're in that sort Mm -hmm. of state of, you know, creating attention for themselves. But even when there was a serious injury in a way that was, that did need attention, like, oh, I'm really sorry that happened to you, whatever. It was as if she partnered with the child observing the pain that they're experiencing rather than making the child the complete object of like pity and, you know, like, again, we're loving and attentive, right? But like, it was almost like, hey, this happened to you and we can get through it and you can get through it, you know, even if it was serious. And it's, none of this is to say, you know, we in any way like deprived our son of affection. I mean, we're Italian. It was like, we've we've probably heaped (laughs) excessive amounts of doting and attention and affection on our son. Yeah. Even to this day. But, you know, it's funny when my mother, little side note, when uh, my mom tells the story of, when I was little, I was always pretty artistic and I used to draw and she went to the preschool teacher and said, said, you know, my son is actually, seems like he's really pretty advanced at drawing. Is there anything we can do to help him with that and encourage that? Or, and the, the teacher, if you can call preschool people teacher, said, oh, all Italian mothers think their kids are so special and so talented. <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> Which is like the worst thing you could say to my mother ever. Like I, I can picture her. It's like that is the thing that would turn her into Voltron. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. It's like that's crazy. <laughs> how wait, you're you're both criticizing my parenting and my child and being Italian. <laughs> it all all wrapped up in one. <laughs> yeah, there was like suddenly like the action streaks are coming by. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so she went turned into an anime character within seconds of that being said. Ah, there we um, go. That's crazy. So, you know, you have this new channel called Dad Saves America. And I watched the introduction or trailer, I guess you might call it. And I encourage our listeners and viewers to do the same because it really sets forth sort of your vision, which which is that there is an important element to American life that has been lost that needs to be recovered. And I want to preface the next question. Well, I have like a question that I want to ask before I ask that. I want you to explain why you love your country, because I think it's very reasonable for someone to be as anti-state and government intervention and all of this as you and I are probably pretty equally, you know, aligned there Mm -hmm. and also love your country because there is a way that you can love your country without being a sort of MAGA Trump nationalist. Because I don't think you're any of those things. So, yeah. Anyway, why do you love America would be the the short question. Well, I mean, I think the first reason why I love America is because she's been incredibly good to me and the people I love. All you have to do is talk to people or travel at all, and you'll realize that there's no guarantee that you'll be born into a place that will allow you and your family to thrive. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people born into circumstances that are truly catastrophic and they 
can put all the effort of the world into trying to thrive, but that the barriers and the obstacles standing in the way are genuinely systemic. Hmm. And I think this country, first of all, has gone about as far as one could conceive in trying to dismantle the actual barriers to individual success. Maybe even to the point of actively harming people by, you know, overcorrecting. Now, that's not to mean everything's perfect, but it says the world that immigrants to the United States outperform native-born Americans in income, in career achievement, in educational attainment. Mm -hmm. Sort of, if you want to love America, all you have to do is speak to first-generation immigrants to this country, and you will learn why America deserves your love. Because they chose to come here, and they're thriving, by and large. And they're, they're like the fundamental fabric of the American enterprise. Mm. My great-great-grandparents are testaments to that. Well, I guess it's my great-grandparents, technically. And they did the same thing. They came here as kids from poor backgrounds in Southern Italy with, you know, no opportunity to thrive. They came to a country where they would be mocked in large measure and treated like second-class citizens in the culture because, you know, turn of the century, Italians were not regarded in high esteem as an immigrant group like virtually every other immigrant group. We all kind of have our <laughs> wave of coming in and being treated like, you know, <laughs> mar marauding barbarians. Oh, you with your raving Catholicism and your hot-headedness and your knives and your mafia and all this stuff. And they've thrived. And they didn't have to thrive. There was no guarantee that they were going to thrive. So I think the fundamental concepts of the country are beautiful and sound. The, the notion that people have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that that right stems not from government itself, but from our nature as a creation of God. And maybe you don't believe in God, but it's within our nature as human beings. I believe it comes from the soul because if you look out into the animal kingdom, the animal kingdom is just a brutal, desperate world of murderous inequality at every turn where your throat's going to be ripped out by whoever happens to be slightly stronger than you. So the idea that equality is in any sense natural defies the basic observation of reality. Yeah. I mean, that's beautiful stuff. That's the realization of the West. It's the triumph of the best of what the human enterprise has been able to, uh, to gather as far as insights go. And now, of course, we're trying to regress back to the disgusting old ways of identity politics, which is as old as time immemorial. Oh, you're different than me. I hate you. It's like... <laughs> You're different. You look like other people I don't like. Therefore, I am going to treat all of you as the same. Like this is about the most this unevolved, is, yeah. brutish, you know, yeah. ape man activity to go back to the way my son talked about the people in Goodfellas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is not the way humans should treat each other. And this is not the American way. Hi, this is Dr. Norman Horn. 
And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, then you'll definitely like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Carrie, Doug, Aaron, and others as we analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. There's been a shift in the way in which we talk about the problems of you know, how America throughout its history didn't live up to its own ideals or, mm-hmm. or it took a long time to do so. You know, because if you look at even as late as Martin Luther King Jr., he was citing, you know, the inalienable right to life, liberty, and happiness and equality as one of the reasons for his marches and for his platform. And now it's, those things are sort of seen as just the white man's way of keeping people down or whatever that's supposed to mean. And it's like, hold on here, there's a fundamental shift in our attitudes about what constitutes not only good governance, but good like societal norms, societal agreements. It really troubles me that free speech is under attack in such a way that it can be under attack. Like you'd think that free speech might be attacked and then people would kind of like shut it down. Like, well, of course we need free speech, you know, and then those people would go sit down and shut up. But no, people are kind of like, oh yeah, maybe free speech is violence or something crazy. Like they, It's getting a foothold in the minds of our youth that free speech is dangerous. And it's those kinds of things that I think are, are pretty, they're very insidious and need jettisoned, right? And, you know, that kind of leads me to the, the next thing I want to talk to you about is your title is provocative in one way, even though for most of us, it'd be like, Dad Saves America. That sounds like a fun, you know, family-friendly title. But... I could imagine a type of feminist being really offended by your title. <laughs> well, look, there's... Like, who do you um, think you are, John? You're right. going to save America, right? What about mom? What about mom? Does mom save America? What about, what about insert not dad? Doesn't that also save America? Yeah, this is the number one sort of question, criticism. Even people that like it have asked of me. What about not dad? My simple answer is... That's not what we're doing. I'm not doing Mom Saves America. I'm doing Dad Saves America. And and so that's what we're talking about. We're talking to dads because dads don't have enough voices out there promoting their role as being essential, as being heroic, Mm. as being fundamentally moral, as being important. And there are an enormous number of groups and organizations dedicated to everyone else, every other group. There are not many devoted to dads and devoted to men more broadly. And it's partly, I think, because, you know, men aren't as good, to be perfectly honest, at expressing our feelings and at coming together and at seeking community. Our stoicism sometimes gets the best of us. But I also think that we are, on average, more inclined to be fixers and By that, I mean, I will speak just personally, but I think it does apply generally. I have screwed up in the way I interact with my wife on numerous occasions. And one of the most steady ways that I will screw up is that I will misinterpret wanting to be heard with a call for me to do something, for me to take action. And I will go one step further. So if if Lisa... She just wants to talk. She wants to hear. She wants to vent her feelings. She wants to work out her thoughts. She wants to engage. And I will quickly move to, well, wait, what am I supposed to do? Well, isn't this 
what are you asking me to do here? How can I fix this? How can I solve this problem? Let me, and then like when there isn't a clear thing for me to do, this is where I really go to being a complete moron. I'll be like, well, why did you tell me if there wasn't anything I could do to fix it? (laughs) (laughs) If if you didn't want me to fix it, why did you tell me in the first place? As my son says, and? (laughs) Like, okay, why, what? (laughs) This is a posture. This is a, I don't have a fully formed notion of what it means to be a man and, to, and, and what is masculinity. Honestly, I don't. But I do think it's an inclination to be action-oriented. Mm. And I do think that that is masculine. And I think that that makes us less community-driven. We care about things, not people, you know, on average. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that that's one of the things I'm trying to enter into the void that that creates with Dad Saves America. Because I do think there's a lot of men out there, like myself, who feel like, well, gosh, aren't we supposed, like, what can I do that's good? Am I so terrible? (laughs) You know? Yeah, there's a bit of culture set against you out there in a way. It's like, you know, you look at every image now is being filtered essentially through Madison Avenue. And I don't mean that literally, although it is kind of literal. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you know, you walk into Best Buy and there's help wanted signs. And there's no white men on the help wanted signs. It's like, you really, like, (laughs) okay, so first of all, we're in Austin, Texas, which is weird as a city because it's like 75% white, which is weird. Moving here from New York, I was like, and I still feel kind of a longing for more diversity than we have in this city. It's a Mm. kind of weirdly white city. But you just think on the basis of, okay, who is likely going to work at Best Buy in the geek squad? And that person is not on the help wanted signs because they were filtered through this lens of like diversity means anyone but me. Yeah. The corporate geek heads are in the cities that are more diverse and or not diverse at all in certain ways. (laughs) And, And I don't fault that. I don't think that that's inherently evil. In fact, I did that. I worked in commercials. I did diversity-based casting intentionally for a decade. So I understand it very tangibly, what it means to try to represent a broad range of your audience in your creative works. And when every single person is thinking that, what you end up with is something that doesn't even remotely represent reality. But that's okay. Even that's okay. I think the problem is that's like a symptom of a deeper zero-sum game, which is to say, if we want our girls to succeed, they have to do it at the expense of our boys. Mm. And that's, that's the root of the question, why not mom saves America? It's this inbred, reinforced, zero-sum mentality, which says, if you're saying dad saves America, you're implying mom doesn't, because there can only be one. It's like the Highlander. If Jeff Bezos has all that money, he took it from somebody. It's like, well, that's not how the world actually works. That's like Hmm. how children think the world works. In reality, mom can save America and dad can save America and you can save America. And anybody that really cares about the country's principles and really has goodness in their heart and wants people to succeed and wants to do it as peacefully as possible can play a role in helping save America. I want to talk to dads. So that's why it's called Dad Saves America. Well, and you know, (laughs) <laughs> the, if you had made a show 
Mom Saves America, they're going to be like, John, you're a dad. Why would you, yeah. who do you think you are to create a show? <laughs> like right, you right, wouldn't right. be able to win either way. So I'm glad you're, you're pressing in with what you know how to do. And of course, it's not zero sum in, in your mind, of course. Um, that is a part of it. And, and I have to say this, really the best answer to the question is I actually started this journey off think, thinking about parenting. And it was my wife, Lisa, who said, you care about being a dad more than anything else in the world. That has always been true. You should focus this on dads. It wasn't actually my first impulse to focus on dads. It was my wife. It was Lisa, my partner in everything, who said to all of us at Merge and Order, we should focus on dads. It's like, we got an office full of dads. It's authentic. It's true to who you are, speaking to me, and to who a lot of our staff is, though we have a diverse staff. So there, <laughs> mom said, let's have dad save America. How's that? Yeah, there you go. That's what the mom told me to do. <laughs> like, like any good dad, I just listened to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So this is a question I want to ask people who are thoughtful about the ideas of harm and aggression and the way in which we treat violence. And this is, this might be a little bit of a tangent here, but it's kind of on my list to talk about. We're about out of time. And I, I would be remiss not to ask you, what is your thoughts on the sort of idea that if my son comes over to your house and this is a terrible example because my son wouldn't be able to do this, beat up your son, right? He punches your son or does something to aggress upon him physically everyone would say, well, that's a trespass of some kind, right? Sure. We're morally obligated to, you know, rectify that or punish him or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And yet, if my son is using verbal language to humiliate your son or to do something that is going to affect his psyche in, let's not say minor ways, we don't tend to traditionally think of that as physical harm. And so most, most people, most libertarians, don't see that as qualifying as aggression. And we have the generation, you know, I've read The Coddling of American Mind, and it is mm -hmm. actually, when I read it, I was like, yeah, this is really good, but like, really? This problem is that bad? And then as the years went on since that, I'm like, oh, wow, they were really right, unfortunately. And so you can develop skills in your children. You can help your children develop skills, I should say, to sort of fight off those kinds of things and to fight off, you know, to ward off the sort of pain that it causes. But it does cause pain and there's neurological ways that that affects us. And so if words can harm us mentally, where's the line between whether it's physical aggression because our mind and our brain is, there's that gray area of what counts as, you know, actually affecting our bodies. I mean, being locked down in 2020 and not able to go see your friends at school. I mean, yes, that was physical, but it was also the emotional toll that we're all talking about right now. We all know that there's emotional isolation and things like that. I know you're not a neuroscientist. I don't even, maybe you've studied this directionally, but I just want to kind of get a sense of somebody who I think is smart and intelligent has really thought through these kinds of things. I don't know, what's your take on, on that sort of difference? Well, I'll say that what we're doing at Dad Saves America is very heavily influenced by the coddling of the American mind. Mm. And in some ways, I, I'd say that what we're trying to do is stand up what I think is essentially the missing component of that book, which is that book identifies this weak-minded, infantile behavior that's now taking place, not just in college campuses, but now in HR departments and throughout the society. This sort of, mm -hmm. let me act like a baby. Let me allow my emotions to 
dictate my actions without any filtration or second thought. That's how babies act. Babies just cry when they're hungry. They don't stop and think because they're a baby. And that's what college students do when they go onto Yale's campus and say, this is not a safe space for intellectual, this my home. It's like, no, it's a school. You're, it's an intellectual discourse space. That's exactly what it is by definition. That's the point. There is a thing called bullying that can be taken to a place that can leave psychological scars. That is true. I don't know where the line on that is. I don't know that anyone could define that line. And I don't think that that line could be fixed because how we respond to our circumstances is in large measure up to us, not up to our surroundings. Hmm. And, you know, a good friend of mine was bullied fairly brutally through his entire childhood and ended up turning out to be the CEO of Whole Foods Market and is one of the most um, loving but also fiercely competitive people I know. And he would say that bullying played a role in toughening his mind and setting his sights on where he could really be awesome and excellent and learning how to inoculate yourself from that. And I had the same thing happen. I, when we moved, when I was 10, we moved to Allentown, Pennsylvania. We moved from an area that was very Italian to an area that was not very Italian. And I actually got pretty mercilessly bullied for being hairy like an ape. I mean, I have hair on parts of my fingers and toes where it's like, I didn't even know hair could grow there. So I was made fun well, of. Well, you having, did, but the rest of us didn't. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I, I knew that like, look, I... I I understand revolution because I can see it when I look in the mirror. Um, <laughs> but I was bullied pretty continually and bullied during the times that are especially difficult, like middle school. Middle school is like really a torture chamber. Now, am I just more tough-minded and I was able to overcome it? It felt pretty bad at the time. Are some people going to be unable to overcome that? Is it because of the bullying? Is it because they don't have the other support in their life to sort of see the goodness and rebuke the the negativity, I don't know the answer to that. Mm. So I think you're asking a really important question. I will say this. I think our culture fundamentally has overcorrected. So wherever that line actually is, and there is a line, there is a line where you, as a parent, need to intervene. There is psychological torture that's real. And kids can be brutal and you have to be on guard for that. But we're so far past that line. It's sort of like the degeneration of the use of the word white supremacist. So it used to be that if somebody was a white supremacist, I mean, they literally were, they were like a member of the KKK. They were David Duke. They were, you know, various former senators that the president used to buddy up with. Now, it's like if you like math, you're contributing to a culture of white supremacy. Or according to the Smithsonian, if you believe it's useful to get to a place on time, that's contributing to a whiteness culture. So everybody with more than three brain cells and who's actually well-intended and loves their fellow man recognizes <laughs> that that's nuts. That the line has gone way out there onto the, the, yeah. the now everything's included. Now everything, everything's white supremacy. And now I think the same thing's happened with bullying. Now everything's bullying. And now yeah. I have to immediately intervene. And now I have to hover over my kid on the playground. And the second they get into any kind of altercation, 
I'm mediating the dispute, which means they're not mediating the dispute, which means they're not learning how to deal with other people. And they are learning that the world is so scary that an authority needs to protect me from it at all times. That is the lesson that our culture teaches our kids today. Yeah. There better be a mom and dad or a mom and dad-like figure there to protect you from the risks and the bumps and the bruises and the mean people of the world. And that's a lie. That's not true. That's not going to work. Like you go out to the world and you get fired from a job or you, or you aren't up to your own expectations. Like sometimes the biggest bully in our lives is ourself. Like who, what do you do about that? <laughs> what do you do when oh, you're man. beating yourself up yeah. over things? We need to find a new equilibrium that recognizes that we have to be emotionally intelligent, yeah. but doesn't infantilize the whole society and treat everybody like teacup babies that need to be coddled and protected and wrapped in bubble wrap at every turn. Yeah, no, oh, man, you and I have like sort of similar hobby horses here and, and ways in which we want to talk about these things. What else should our listeners know about Dad Saves America? Where can they find it? Uh, how can they sign up when, you know, there's alerts and all that or new, new episodes? So, We've launched on YouTube. That's our main platform, youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica. But if you want to really get connected to what we're doing, learn more, or even make a donation as a nonprofit enterprise, you can go to dadsavesamerica.com and there's a subscribe button for our email newsletter and a donate button if you want to become a partner in helping us get the word out. And um, we're aiming to publish new content every week. So if you've got ideas for subjects that you'd be interested in hearing more about as a dad, as a parent, or as a kid, I really encourage you to go to the website or go into the comments section of our videos and, and uh, let us know. Great. Well, John, I've appreciated what you've put out so far, and I'm looking forward to more, and I appreciate you coming on to talk with us. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 